Well, I got a question for you this morning. Uh, how many of you would say that in some area of your life, you love to be in control? Wow, hands up even. Well, it's a confessional day here. You guys need to get some work done. All right, so today I want to I wanna share with you a little bit about control and surrender. And I want to start with a personal example and embarrass myself a little bit here. Um, but I should probably start with Olivia first, because that's a little easier. That's the softball. So when Olivia and I got married, um, how many of you know that when you get married, two worlds kind of... Um, I, I could say, what was that? <laughs> Some could say merge, others would say collide, others would say crash. Sometimes there are fireworks in that, and I don't mean the good kind of fireworks, I mean other kinds of fireworks, when those worlds collide. So much of that has to do with the way that we like to control things. We like to do things our own way, we like to see our own path. And we don't realize before we get married, and single people, I encourage you, this is an important thing to recognize, that along the way there are a lot of little things that you will learn to get used to controlling. Now for Olivia, um, this was an example that she gave me. I had to ask her, Liv, is there anything that you like to control? Um, I figured it would be better if she would give me the example rather than coming up with it myself. And so she reminded me of a good one. When we got married... It used to drive her crazy that I would come home, and this seemed perfectly normal to me. I'd done this all my life, and I would take my wallet, my phone, and my keys, and I would go to the kitchen counter and set them there. Just set them down. Drove her bananas. Why would I ever put my keys on the counter every day? Then every day she had to clean them up. After a few weeks, she figured out that she could just pick them up and move them somewhere. I wouldn't know where they are. And I learned the lesson after a while that if, if I set them there, they would be lost to me because she was going, she wasn't trying to hide them. Right. But all of a sudden they were hidden. They weren't where I left them. And I just thought that was a little psychotic at first when we got married. (laughs) But on the flip side, we would then go, once I found my keys again, get in the car. And she had this habit where we would pick up the mail or anything that was in the car, anything sitting in the front seat, um, she would pick up and put on the dash. Oh, my goodness. Okay, if you're ever in the car with me, here's a tip. Please, please, please do not put anything on my dashboard. I, I cannot handle stuff on the dashboard. Um, so all the time, you know, get in the car. First thing she did, grab something that was in the seat on the dashboard just drove me bonkers, all right? I love to control my dashboard in the car. Please also don't touch the radio. Okay, but there are things in life that we all like to control. And and here's, here's the problem with control. When we seek control ourselves, it actually reveals a deeper spiritual issue inside of us. What is that? What is that issue? This sounds like a big statement, but the unrenewed human heart seeks control because we have something inside of us that wants to be like God. See, God is the master of all things. He is sovereign in his power. He tells the sun to rise and to fall. But when we are seeking control again and again and of more and of more, we are actually pursuing God's role 
And I'm proposing today, it's not our role to have, it's his. So when we seek control, it reveals a deeper problem. And, and my heart desires to hold the steering wheel of my life, figuratively, and not let go. Not let go so that God can drive my car or touch my dashboard. And I like to control things. Now, the foundation of our faith as Jesus followers is this. We surrender control of our lives. We give it to him. That's the foundation. Think about this. If you have come to know Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, when you say, Lord, I need you, I have sin in my life that I need the blood of Jesus to wash clean and I believe in you, I trust in you, I repent of my sin, that moment may be the most surrendered moment of your life. Because what you're saying is, I need something that I can't get on my own. So what I'm saying is, surrender of our control is the foundation of our faith. Matter of fact, surrender of control is the foundation of the church. This is actually why this is my sermon this week. Coming out of last week in this transition, I figured, why not start... Uh, at surrender. Why not start there? Because here's what I want you to do. I want everyone, just as a little example, you don't have to participate. I want you to point at the church. Point at the church. So there's people pointing around, lots of things going on. Now I want you to take your finger and put it right in your chest. Guess what? You are the church. Church is not a building, folks. Church is not an organization. You are the church, right? When If we want a church that's surrendered to Jesus, that's doing the work of ministry, that's impacting our lives, our community, the buck stops with you. That's scary if you're in control. That's scary if I'm in control. That's scary if the church staff is always in control. Because surrender to Jesus is how we let God work in us and through us. Does that make sense? Now, surrender on a basic level, it's a biblical commandment. I want to read a few verses, and as I read these, think through, where is the surrender commandment in this verse? I'm just going to go through them. James 4, 7. James said, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Romans 12.1, Paul says to the church of Rome, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Mark 8, 34 through 35. This is what Jesus said. Here's a tough verse. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He's not the same. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. One of the most challenging verses and statements of Jesus, Luke fourteen thirty three. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. See again and again, God calls his people, surrender, give up control. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Surrender, give up the steering wheel. Give up your dashboard. What do you want to control? Now, I have a question. Why does God desire our surrender? Doesn't that seem a little tyrannical? Why does God want to control my life? Has anyone ever had these questions? Why do I have to give up things to God? Why can't I just do this life with him? I do my thing. God does his thing. We go together. Here's why. Number one, God desires intimacy with us. More specifically, God desires intimacy with you. God created the world in such a way that in relationship, you can either have control or you can have intimacy. Guess what? You can't have both. Now, if you're married, try this with your spouse. No, don't try it. You've maybe tried this with your spouse. How much intimacy is there when you are controlling? It doesn't go very well. But when you give up control, when you work together, when you say, hey, I'm, I don't need to have my way every time, intimacy can come in. Real love can be there because you are united in it. God wants to be united in a purpose with us. Amen? Secondly, why we, why we need to surrender. God's sovereign knowledge and power are far greater than anything that we'll ever access or comprehend in our control. The truth is, in a world, in a United States where we pursue an American dream, God's way is still better than anything we've come up with. It's still better. Now, I want to give a demonstration, right? So we're talking about control, surrender. There's the petty examples of how petty it was that Olivia would move my keys all the time. And uh, there's just practical stuff. I want to give a real biblical example of this that really shows clearly what I'm trying to say. And I want to tell you a story, and it's from Genesis 15. If you've got your Bibles, 15 and 16, if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open there. And this is about a man and woman named Abram and Sarai. Now, you may better know Abram and Sarai from a, a names that God later gave them of Abraham and Sarah. Now, that might ring a bell. Abraham um, is known as the father of our faith, sort of the earthly dad to all of us if you really uh, go back in the lineage when it comes to our faith in God. See, God found this man named Abraham, and he was a man who would be faithful to him and obedient. However, Abram at that time was still just a man, and he struggled with giving real control to God. 
Now, if you look in Genesis 15, uh, God had found him faithful, found him obedient. Um, and he told Abram, because you are so obedient, I'm going to bless you. He said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And God actually took Abram outside. All right, imagine you go outside. It's nighttime. And, he, and God says, Abram, look up. Look up at the sky. Do you see all those stars? Why don't you count them? Try to count the stars. And God says, when you count that, that's how great your descendants will be. That's how greatly I'm going to bless your offspring. That you're going to have kids that are going to reproduce and again and again. And your impact is going to go on for generations. That's what God said. There was only one problem. The day God said that to Abram, him and Sarah did not have any children. So God was making this grand promise to Abram that he was going to have descendants impact for generations. Uh, as many as the stars. Another time he took him to, this, to imagine this, the shore. He said, look at the sand. Count the grains of sand. That's how great your descendants will be. What a promise. But there were no children. Now, in Genesis 16, we see this story where Abram and Sarai wrestle with control. See, God had made a promise to them, but when God promises something, it's still going to come in his way. It's still going to come in his timing. It's still going to come in the way he ordains it to be. In Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai were struggling to see how this promise could come to pass because they didn't have children. So, Instead of remaining surrendered, they took control. Genesis 16, this is how it reads. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid who was her servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And she's thinking about this promise God had made. He said, please go with my maid. And he said, he actually, she actually, it's a, as kinky as it sounds, said, go sleep with my maid. I'll give you to her as a second wife. And perhaps I will obtain children through her. Now, the biggest mistake here, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now, let me give you a, a word of advice. Um, if your wife ever asks you to do something like this, men, do not do it. All right? It's pretty basic. Don't do this. Just not a good idea overall. Um, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to Abram as his wife. And they got pregnant, all right? So everything Sarah wanted or Sarai wanted happened. But as soon as she got pregnant, all of a sudden Sarai's heart turned against Hagar. She was bitter and jealous because God was... God could let this happen to her servant, but she still couldn't have children. So the story just went down a really bad path from there. They thought it was a good idea. They took control. They said, hey, we've got to get this promise of God going. Abram, you don't have any children. I don't know what God's doing here. So we've got to find a way to have kids so that God can fulfill this promise. Seems like a good heart, but they were taking control. So it goes on. All of a sudden, now Sarai's treating Hagar really harshly, really badly. They had the son, and the son's name was Ishmael. Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar had bore Ishmael to him. Remember, this is a time very long ago when uh, people were living longer. That's a whole different story, teaching, explanation. People were living longer, so Abram was 86 years old when he had um, Ishmael. So Abram and Sarai, they'd taken control of the promise. They tried to make things happen their way. Clearly, right away, it went bad. There was bitterness in the house. Hagar and Sarai were fighting. Ishmael wasn't behaving well. Poor kid. He didn't get it. It wasn't his fault, but there he was. See, God's promise, think about this, still came forth through Ishmael. Ishmael um, was the father of many nations. He had great descendants. He had great influence. He had great practical earthly blessing but it wasn't god's way and we're going to see that see why here in a minute so later on down the road after abram and sarai realized they messed up this wasn't god's way god does a miracle all right abraham is 100 years old sarai is 90 years old this would be um 14 years later they have a baby in old age. Incredible miracle, incredible story. See, God is doing things his way, once again, in a surrendered life, re-surrendered life, that is beyond what a human could comprehend. And they had this son, his name was Isaac. Now, you're going to see, if you dig into your Bible, a lot of Genesis, a lot of Exodus, a lot of the first few books of the Bible are going to be so linked to these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and their descendants. Now, some incredible things happen with Isaac, and we're going to hear those stories more another time. But here's the, here's the gist of the story. God fulfilled his promise through Isaac, through his way, through a miracle. But these people tried to make it happen in control in their own way. Now, what did that lead to? So Isaac goes over here, and he this promise comes to pass. He has a lot of kids. His kids have a lot of kids. Their kids have a lot of kids. Great influence. Some of the heroes of the Bible are actually descendants of Abraham, like God promised, through Isaac. At the same time, Ishmael is also having a lot of kids. And his kids are having a lot of kids. And both rise up with national powers. On Ishmael, Ishmael's side, multinational powers powers think government powers and later on not long after maybe a century or two later all of a sudden we're seeing the israelite people which came from isaac and the many descendants of ishmael fighting and warring together just like control and surrender fought between isaac and sarah i'm sorry abraham and sarah control for land was being fought between the people of Isaac and the people of Ishmael, the Israelites and all their enemies. Now, here's what I, tell, what I want to tell you that is fascinating, just to reflect on this week. When we look at the war that's happening right now in Israel, in Gaza, most of us are watching in the news. Do you guys know what that came from? Where did the strife come from? See, the Palestinians can trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And the Israelite people track their lineage back to Isaac. See, 
that here centuries, centuries, centuries later, these two sides are still at war. Matter of fact, think of this. Mohammed actually traced, he claimed he could trace his lineage back to Ishmael. And, and most historians believe that was true. So this, this battle, even in our uh, religious spectrum in the world today, between Islam and so many nations and Christianity, link back to control versus surrender. Now, I doubt that you or I will ever make a decision between control or surrender that will ever have that net impact. And, and I'm not trying to say this comically, but I just want to say, let's not risk it. Let's not risk that people could look back centuries later and link some things back to our control versus surrender. We don't want that story. So how do we avoid it? Well, Mike would say this often. Mike still says this often. The answer is Jesus. More specifically, the example of Jesus. Now, most of us, when we reflect on the life of Jesus and his example, we tend to think that Jesus was incredibly wise as he controlled each step of his life, each way he took. But guess what? Jesus actually strongly denied that. Jesus lived in total surrender, even as God. He lived in surrender to God the Father. He realized somewhere, this doesn't even make that much sense to me because Jesus was fully God, fully man, all in one package, yet he lived totally surrender. Why? I would argue it was to be an example to us. How we live in surrender. See, in all the things Jesus did, think about this. In three and a half years of ministry, Jesus left an impact that we are still talking about him today, 2,000 years later. Three and a half years. Mike pastored for 28 years. Jesus went three and a half years. You've done a great job, Mike. That's just a joke. John 5, 19 through 20, Jesus, Jesus said this. He answered uh, so he was answering some questions, and it was a very heated moment with religious leaders where they were actually trying to um, take his life. And it was, it was before his time of his death. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, referring to himself as in the Son of God, can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He goes on and says, For the Father loves the Son and shows himself all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Think about the miracles Jesus was doing, a reflection of the Father. The impact of speaking and teaching, reflections of the Father. Jesus said again in John twelve forty nine. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Other examples, we see Jesus, think about this, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says in the prayer to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not even Jesus' own will. He says your kingdom come, your will be done. 
Again, in the garden, before um, he was going to go to the cross, he was praying alone, and he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus lived a life in total surrender, and we as the church, as we just reflected on me, I'm called to live likewise, to live surrendered to Jesus. So what does surrender look like? What does surrender look like? And I've, I've thought, how do I demonstrate surrender? How do I demonstrate how we do this well? Um, and, and I thought there was no better example than something my dad used to teach us growing up. And he learned this from a pastor uh, decades ago. And he always taught us this, that when we're living in surrender to God, we are like a glove. See, this glove would represent my life. And with, without anything inside of it, there's no form. It's flimsy. Now, this glove can do some decent things on its own. But what it really needs, it needs to be filled, led, and directed. And when, and when a hand goes inside of it, it takes form. It takes direction. Right? So if the glove is my life, I can put my hand in the glove. And I can lead and direct what I do, what I say. I can lead and direct my family. I can lead and direct this church. I can lead and direct uh, our finances, my relationships, the way I interact with culture. I can lead and direct it. Or I can give up control and let God fill it. Let God fill me. And let him work in me and through me. Not as I will, but as he wills. Here's the beauty of it. And I'll talk about this, the scary part of it in a minute. But here's the beauty of it. In surrender, when God fills us and we let him work in and through us, we discover the greatness of the riches of the goodness of God and who he is. Now, what are those things that make God that? There are many of them. But this week I was reading a book that's really been impacting my life. Um, and this book is called The Father Heart of God. The Father Heart of God by Floyd McClung Jr. And he goes through and lists some of the goodness of God along with Scripture. And I just want to share some of those things with you today. And I hope this will encourage you in your perspective of who God is and what he does. First, God is a creator. He's one who created us in his image with freedom to choose if we will respond to his love. Matter of fact, he created us with freedom to choose whose hand goes in the glove of our life. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. What else is God? God's a provider. He's one who loves to provide for our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual needs. By the way, far greater than we can. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus said, If you even then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Or can I paraphrase, to those who surrender? 
What else is God? He's a friend and counselor. He one, he's one who longs to have intimate relationship with us and to give us wise counsel and instruction. David said in Psalm 73, With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. He's also a corrector. He'll keep us on the right path. He lovingly corrects and disciplines us. Hebrews says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And this was referring old, uh, old Testament teaching. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate son and not a child of God. See, God corrects and disciplines those who are under surrender to him. What else? He's a redeemer. He's purchased us. He's one who forgives his children's faults and brings good out of the failures and weaknesses. He is one who saves. I love this. Psalms 103, 12 through 13. As far as the east is from the west, so far, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He's also a comforter. He's also a defender and a deliverer. He's also a father of love. Now, most of us, maybe not all of us, maybe there's some surprises in there, and that's good. Most of us know those things about God. You've been around church long enough to know those things are true. But the thing is, we've got another step if we want that to abide in us and live through us. And the step is surrender. But he's a good God. He'll do good things in us. In surrendering our deepest needs to God, his strength in these characteristics abide in us and through us. The problem is that we are prone to believe that our own strength is or has become proficient for living the life we desire, and we slowly get back in control. Now, in late August, I preached a sermon about sanctification and just explained sanctification. So I actually pulled some slides from that week. If we want to put that up there, um, that's, that just explain that sanctification is not a linear path. When we are uh, becoming more like Jesus, when we are growing as believers, it's not a linear path. It doesn't go like this. More surrender to Jesus is going to look like the next one. Thank you. It looks like this. Up, down, up, down, up, down. That's sanctification. That's how we grow and become more like Jesus from the beginning. Now, if we go to the next slide, we're going to see that hopefully in sanctification, we take that arrow up. In the end, as we have our ups and downs, we're becoming more like Jesus if Jesus is at that top, right? Now, there are two factors in this. There's maturity and then there's time, right? Now, why am I bringing that up today? It's because this. Usually, when we're at the very start at the bottom, like I said, we are very surrendered to the Lord in that we have said, Lord, 
I need you. I can't do this on my own. I give my life to you. That's a prayer of incredible surrender. But many of us, as we go up in sanctification, for some reason, think that control should go up with that. That we should get more control as we go because we're more mature and we're thinking about things more clearly. But I would argue that it should go the other way. We started a great surrender and we go upwards to even greater surrender. We can't fall into believing that our increase in sanctification indicates more control. If anything, it will indicate greater and deeper surrender to God. Now, William Booth said this, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. The greatness of a man's power is the measure of surrender. One day, you and I will uh, inevitably encounter a power struggle with the Lord over surrender and control like Abram and Sarai did. And we can choose our path from there. Will we give surrender to the Lord or will we grab on like Sarai and Abram did, take control of the promise and try to do it in our own way, in our own timing? So my question today for you as we end um, or as we come to a close, what is something that you are trying to control that really should belong to God in surrender? This may look different for all of us. Something we're grabbing on and controlling. But I want to give you some examples of what that may be. You could be like me, and, uh, and I admit I am this way. As I become uh, more understanding of who God is, I start to lean on my own logic to think through things, to say, I think I can figure this out. And I'm grateful I have a wife that calls me on this regularly, probably weekly, and says, Matt, you can't figure this out with your brain and your own logical power. See, when, when I am just trying to think through things, and if I think through things long enough, have enough confidence that I've made the, made the right choice, I've missed a step. I've missed God in the whole process. And I'm just doing things through my own logic, which is faulty and doesn't understand things like God does. Maybe for you, control is in your finances. Maybe you are fighting to do things well, whatever that means to you, to reach an American dream with your finances, but you haven't really surrendered them to God, even on, the, on a basic level of, of the tithe, of giving God that 10% and then seeing what he'll do and bless you with with the rest of the 90%. Maybe you haven't surrendered that yet and you're keeping control of it. Maybe for you, it's relationship. Maybe you know God has promised you a great man or a great woman but you've been distracted along the way trying to take control and get someone who is less than God's best for you. Maybe it's in your marriage. Let's be honest, men. A lot of us, we can, at our worst, become pretty controlling husbands. Same for wives. You're not off the hook. Maybe you're obsessed with controlling the image that your kids portray of you. Maybe you're obsessed with your personal appearance. Of what everyone else thinks about you. You got to spend a lot of time in the mirror every day. I'm guilty of that sometimes. Believe it or not, even with this hairline. Maybe, maybe you're obsessed with controlling your career and how your family is fed. And you're jumping from job to job to job, 
because you're jumping ahead of what God has for you and you're not actually slowing down and saying, Lord, where would you have me to go? What would you have me to do? We could go on and on, right? There are so many things we try to control. But the, the point is, surrender is scary for us. It's scary because we don't know where God will take us. But I just want to, in this message today, remind us as a church and as people of Jesus that God knows better. God knows better. So as we live life in him, let's let him fill our glove and live in us and work through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for these people. Lord, I thank you for this church and that this is a people who desire to be surrendered to you. Father, I just ask as we walk this out, Lord, would you help us? Help us to know the practical steps Help us to be reminded to listen to your voice. Lord, would you help me as I try to pursue listening to you over my own logic? Lord, we know that your way is better. We don't want to have the outcome of Abram and Sarai when we try to take control. But Lord, we want to be like Jesus and only do what we see you doing. Only see and hear and and say what you say. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness to us that when we turn to you again and again, you respond every time. Lord, we trust you. We bless you. Father, I ask that this would be a blessed people as we go out into this week. Lord, would you prosper us, make your face shine upon us, and be gracious to us as we go out and be a light into our community and into the world. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.